0: Well, thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me. I always find it fascinating to have a, a room of people who want to listen what I have to say. <laughs> but uh, the way I have organized this, I, I don't know why you leave me alone. There's nobody to sit here. It feels very lonely. I have uh, prepared something that I will read just uh, as an introduction. This year is the 70th anniversary of the United Nations. Uh, So, I feel a little bit, as a staff member, I feel it's an obligation to talk about the 70th anniversary of the United Nations. This is very general ideas, you're all experts, this is probably uh, a cliché to you, but I want to say it anyway, and then we'll open the room for some discussion. Do not be afraid with the questions, there are no difficult questions, there are difficult answers. Uh, this meaning, if I don't want to answer, I will not answer. <laughs> and that's addressed to you, Antonio. <laughs> now, this being said, please, this is very informal. It will not be recorded. And um, let's, uh, I depend on you to make it also interesting. Now, what I wanted to say uh, in the beginning, it relates um, to the contributions of the United Nations to the development of international law. And um, I would start by saying that the international legal order is decentralized and no single central organ exercises functions akin to legislatures in national legal orders. States create international legal rules either implicitly through their practice and opinion juris, the combination of which constitutes rules of customary international law, or explicitly through the adoption of bilateral or multilateral treaties, setting out legal rules and obligations for the states adhering to them. And this creates a very complex legal system in which the contribution of international subjects that are not states, such as international organizations, is not always clear. And I remember here when I was a student many years ago in my first degree in law school, I heard from a few law professors saying that, you know, international law is not really law, you know. So we still face that stigma sometimes. Now, international organizations are creatures of their mandates. They're brought into being by states to perform certain tasks. And in the case of the United Nations, this mandate is exceptionally broad, encompassing almost all aspects of international life. If you have a look to this year's uh, agenda of the General Assembly you will see um, the agenda has more or less 170 items covering everything in sustainable development, drug control, uh, human rights, any possible topics. Now, generally speaking, the United Nations consists of three mutually reinforcing pillars, peace and security, development and human rights. As established by the International Court of Justice in the Reparations Advisory Opinion, The organization also enjoys an independent legal personality in certain aspects, respects in detachment from its members, that is indispensable to its activities. It's equipped with organs and special tasks. Accordingly, while states are the legislators of the international legal system, over the 70 years of its existence, the United Nations has provided not only a forum for collective action but also a defined legal framework and an independent agency to contribute to the development and consolidation of legal norms. So in my comments, I will briefly uh, trace the contribution of the United Nations to the development of international law in a few important ways. I would like to focus uh, first on the role of the organization as a venue for collective action, and that includes uh, multilateral treaty negotiation. Second, the lawmaking that occurs through the organs and institutions of the organization, such as the work of the International Law Commission, the adoption of resolutions and decisions by the organization's political organs, and the jurisprudence of the International Court of Justice. And finally, a little bit daringly, the contribution of the legal opinions of the Office of Legal Affairs to the development of international legal rules and customary norms. Now, on the first point, venue for collective action. The broad uh, mandate and near universal membership of the United Nations makes it a unique venue for collective action. No other international organization can match the breadth or depth of the opportunities presented by the UN for states to give voice to their positions. And in a way, the United Nations also enjoys a presentive legitimacy that complements its structural elements. It is premised on the principle of sovereign equality, giving each member an important stake in the organization's activities. The substantive output of this collective action can take many shapes, In the context of contributions to the development of international law, a primary, although not exclusive, form is a multilateral treaty. The number of multilateral treaties adopted under the auspices of the United Nations has grown exponentially. In 1997, around 80 multilateral treaties were deposited with the Secretary-General, and this is a particular division in my office called the the Treaty Section. And less than 40 years later, this figure has risen to more than 560. Hmm? So multilateralism is very alive. Every year, I organize with this uh, division in my office uh, what we call a treaty event during the the high-level period of the General Assembly, and we invite states to come and deposit or sign treaties or deposit instruments of accession and ratification. And... um, and this year, for instance, I had the pleasure of uh, hosting the Prime Minister of Somalia, deposit its uh, ratification of um, the Convention uh, of the Rights of the Child, is the 196th ratification of the treaty. I think it's the second most ratified treaty ever in history, and there's only one remaining country which has not read <laughs> that <line. laughs> So the ones who smile know probably it's the US... Um, and I remember when I arrived the first year in 2013 to to New York, and uh, I was lucky or unlucky, I just arrived three days before the beginning of the General Assembly, and uh, we had the best seller in the, in the treaty event that year was the Arms Trade Treaty, and uh, I had um, a very significant number of personalities coming to sign or, uh, this treaty. And uh, all of a sudden, I was all over the press because Kerry came to sign the treaty and it was a big baptism of fire in the United Nations. So 560 treaties is quite impressive. Now, a further identifiable trend in modern treaty making is the tendency towards the establishment of institutional mechanisms in relation to multilateral treaties with conferences of states' parties, secretariats, and other bodies now delegated core responsibilities in the negotiation, conclusion, and implementation of treaties. I think the the Assembly of States Parties of the International Criminal Court is the best example for this. In what concerns lawmaking through the organs and institutions of the organisation, we have to bear in mind that the organisation has also been involved in lawmaking through its various organs and subsidiary bodies, which has had a substantial impact on numerous areas of international law. Article 131 a of the Charter calls on the General Assembly to initiate studies and make recommendations for the purpose of encouraging the progressive development of international law and its codification. And uh, this year, I have to confess you, I was very pleased when... Uh, Pope Francis, in his speech, and I'm, I'm quoting not of, because of any particular religious belief, but he mentioned this particular article in the beginning of his article, and then he mentioned international law and uh, international rule of law five times during his speech. So I felt very uh, happy about that. You know, it's, uh, it gives me some more power when I have to discuss with my colleague diplomats or uh, what law is about. And you bear in mind that... Uh, the relationship between the international lawyer and the diplomat or the his colleague doing a strictly diplomatic or political work is not always easy. It's not a love marriage. It's more imposed marriage. <laughs> it's up to us to make our own space, but for people who have worked in the foreign office, you know that sometimes it's not easy to be heard. Um, again, it's a small... Personal comment. Now in implementing Article thirteen one A, the Assembly has essentially established a conveyor belt of international lawmaking. The manufacturing process begins ideally with the International Law Commission, where issues are considered and instruments are drafted and traverses back through the General Assembly, in particular its sixth committee, called Legal Issues Committee where instruments are further considered and developed by member states before being adopted and opened for accession. Outside of that process, the General Assembly and the Security Council have also been influential on their own accord in developing international law through their deliberative functions. And finally, the International Court of Justice, while not entrusted with any legislative role, also contributes to the development of international law through its decisions in contentious cases and advisory opinions. Now, in discharging the obligations of Article 131 a of the Charter, the key consideration underlying the dual concepts of progressive development and codification of international law is the belief that written international law will remove the uncertainties of customary international law by filling existing gaps in the law, as well as by giving precision to abstract general principles whose practical application is not settled. And we had some interesting moments on Tuesday on the meeting here about codification around these topics. I sincerely believe what I'm saying. There's some legal cultural sensibilities around this statement, but uh, we can discuss this later. Now, the practice of the International Law Commission over the last 67 years has demonstrated that maintaining a strict distinction between the codification of settled law, like lata) and the progressive development of international law, the ferenda) has not always been possible since the mode in which it was operating when considering any particular topic of international law was largely a matter of opinion. Instead, the Commission has come to view the two modes as a single composite concept where international lawmaking takes place on a continuum between codifying largely settled rules to progressively developing other aspects. And uh, in the exercise of their deliberative functions, the General Assembly and the Security Council have also been active in the development of international law. The Assembly's very broad mandate has meant that it has considered a wide range of activities and topics, While much of this work has necessarily been undertaken at the political level, such activities have been accompanied by or have led to the further development of international rules. And think about the 1970 uh, Declaration on uh, Friendly Relations or the definition of aggression, which uh, was much later in 2010 incorporated in the definition of the Kampala amendments to the Rome Statute. So, this is an example, a good example, of the norm, possible normative impact of uh, General Assembly uh, resolutions. Now, its contribution uh, to the development of international law in this context has been more indirect, either by way of providing generally policy guidance to lawmaking processes, or more procedural through the formal establishment of processes or subsidiary bodies with a mandate to consider the legal aspects of specific issues. Of all the areas the Assembly has been involved in over the course of the last 70 years, its activities in the area of human rights have been particularly normative. The Assembly has adopted a number of declarations and other texts, many of which serve as a basis for the subsequent negotiation of major multilateral treaties. And the key text is, of course, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights adopted by the General Assembly in 1948, which served as the basis for the subsequent negotiation of the two covenants and inspired many other human rights treaties. The assembly has also referred, in other major proclamations, such as the Millennium Declaration of 2000, to the need, more generally, to respect internationally recognized human rights and fundamental freedoms. And this is, of course, uh, only a representative sample. While the Security Council has a narrower mandate than the General Assembly, it has the power to take binding decisions on substantive matters. And according to Article 39 of the Charter, the Security Council has the authority to first determine the existence of a threat to the peace, a breach of the peace or an act of aggression, and then make recommendations or decide what measures shall be taken in accordance to Article 41 and 42, to maintain or restore international peace and security. In practice, such measures have ranged from targeted sanctions against terrorists to the establishment of peacekeeping operations and the creation of international criminal tribunals. And uh, on this last one, I mean, if you get to think about it, this requires a very creative interpretation of the Charter, the establishment of international tribunals, on the basis of Chapter 7. Um, But uh, this was probably only possible in the 90s, which was a period of global optimism, but still, you know, it's a very creative interpretation of the Charter, Uh, as uh, peacekeeping is a very creative interpretation of the Charter, if you get to think about it. And... uh, This means that the Security Council can actually do very important and very interesting things. Now, importantly, enforcement measures adopted by the Council under Chapter 7 of the Charter are not constrained by the general prohibition on intervention in matters essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of states contained in Article 2.7 of the Charter. In the exercise of its functions under the Charter, The Security Council has the power to take binding decisions in specific situations and it has used its discretion to hold wrongdoing states and non-state actors alike responsible under international law. It has regularly found violations of international law and taken sanctions against the wrongdoers, including states and non-state actors, thus contributing to filling the enforcement gap that characterizes the decentralized international legal system and this is this enforcement gap that led some of my old law professors saying that international law was not really law. Now, some of the first cases concerned Southern Rhodesia in 1966 in relation to the right to self determination of the majority population, South Africa in 1977 in connection with these apartheid policies. In subsequent years, the Security Council strongly condemned violations of international humanitarian law in crisis such as those in Somalia, Rwanda and Sudan, although I think in Rwanda the international community miserably failed its obligations, and Sudan, which all involved internal conflicts. It also characterized the massacre in Rwanda as constituting genocide. Moreover, the Security Council attributed some such violations of international law to non-state actors, such as UNITA in Angola, the Bosnian Serbs, the Taliban or Al-Qaeda, and the Janjaweed in Sudan. Since the early 90s, the Security Council has continuously addressed terrorism issues by means of sanctions, just to raise a topic that Antonio likes very much. Another major way by which the Security Council contributes to international law is the authorization of peace operations. While traditional peacekeeping is said to have its legal basis in Chapter 6 of the the Charter, the Security Council more recently has developed a practice of invoking Chapter 7 of the Charter when authorizing more complex peace operations in volatile environments. Throughout the history, there were, I think, 69 peacekeeping operations Currently, the United Nations has 16 uh, peacekeeping operations. I'm I'm very bad for figures, but I think it's 16 right now. And it's more than 130,000 military personnel uh, abroad. And uh, I will uh, finish this point by referring to the, the significant role of the International Court of Justice in the development of international law, which is commonly accepted. It is the principal organ of the United Nations entrusted with a judicial function, that is the function of resolving legal disputes, but in the process of these, the court's ancillary function is undoubtedly to some extent the development of international law. The almost uninterrupted existence of an international court for nearly a century has resulted in the development of a very significant body of international jurisprudence, which the court seeks to keep consistent, but also sensitive to the development of international law. The court is only, uh, also the only international law judicial institution with comprehensive jurisdiction under international law. Its power to decide disputes extend to all disputes concerning any question of international law. The court is, as such, uniquely placed among international courts and tribunals, to contribute to the development of international law and has done so in many crucial areas of international law. Now, on the third aspect, development of international law through the legal opinions of the Office of Legal Affairs, it's a, a more sensitive one, I came across when I was preparing um, this summary an article written in 1948 by Oscar Schuster, which uh, was exactly the development of international law through the legal opinions of the Office of Legal Affairs. And I was thinking, this is being an optimist and really what confidence, you know. The Office was created in 1946. So Oscar Chasse was already saying in 1948, writing about the contribution of the legal This is, you know, you have to be very confident. But it's a very good article anyway. Now, the contribution of the Office's legal opinions to the development of international law, broadly defined should be viewed in the context of the organization's operations as a well, whole, as well as its unique composition and the authority and responsibilities accorded to it by its member states under the Charter of the United Nations, some of which are sui The range of questions on which the Office is asked to provide legal advice is exceptionally broad extending across the spectrum of international relations and reflecting the unique position of the United Nations in the larger international system. The effectiveness of the Office's opinions relies less on formal authority, which tribunals and other judicial organs may enjoy, than on their increasing merits, legal soundness and persuasive force legal advice represents a critical element for ensuring that the united nations and each of its constituent entities holds to its constitutional foundations and operates according the rule of law as an example the legal considerations associated with the united nations peacekeeping operations illustrate this point and I'm sure you are aware that peacekeeping has become become so complex, legally, materially. um, It's fascinating for a lawyer, but the mandates are more and more and more complex, and this requires, at least my my lawyers, to be more and more creative, which is a, a fundamental quality to work in the United Nations. It requires some creativity. Now, legal advice... Peacekeeping is provided at each step of the peacekeeping process, beginning with the establishment of the respective mission by the Security Council, the building up of the mission's components through the receipt of contributions of personnel and equipment by member states, and the conclusion of status of forces agreements with the host, uh, uh, host country. The sanctions regime established by the Security Council represents another area where advice from the Office of Legal Affairs has contributed markedly. Another specialized area where the Office has permanently affected the development of international law relates to the privileges and immunities enjoyed by international organizations. And given the breadth of these operations, it is probably the world's most prolific actor in this regard. Now, to a certain extent, the Office acts for the organization, it's in external relations, and so is a direct participant in the process of shaping international law. And this includes negotiating international agreements, formulating and making protests, and presenting claims. The Office's main activity, however, is the provision of internal advice. When the Office provides its opinion, it is then for its addressees to act or not to act upon that advice. And in doing so, it is they and not the office that establish the practice of the organization. This practice contributes to the development of the organization's rules. It also shapes the interpretation or application of the treaties to which the organization is part or under which it has rights and obligations and contributes to or influences the development of rules of customary international law. The contribution of the officers' opinions to the development of international law is therefore largely indirect, but it's nonetheless real. Now I would stop here. Back to you. <laughs>